0: listeners at home, where you are zooming in from and why?
1: Sarah, I am in my car in front of my house (laughs) because today they are framing my workshop next to my house because if our listeners have been paying attention, I burned part of my house down. And because it was connected to my house, they are redoing all of the roof, which just happens to coincide with today. And my 1950s Oven and stove are separated and been conked out. So I'm also demolishing a kitchen and putting in a new stove. And so I was awakened at the crack of dawn by people literally on top of my head, ripping, felt like my scalp off and (laughs) hitting it with a hammer.
0: And so what you're saying is you are well rested, not at all stressed out, and so excited to be doing an interview from your car right now. I
1: absolutely cannot wait to talk about sleep (laughs) with Dr. David Sampson, the sleep expert that we have on our show from the University of Toronto, COVID dreams, dreams dreams. of fire, dreams of catastrophe, and all the things. Honestly, now that I don't have
0: banging, because the Mm -hmm. car is actually decent, probably has decent acoustics too, so I'm here. Did you have any weird COVID-associated dreams in the past 15 months?
1: No, I haven't had any, but you know what I want to talk to about is how do we account for all of the wine and edibles people have had to help them sleep and get through the pandemic? Because everybody oh. I talk to is like struggling with their sleep patterns in general.
0: Interesting. And
1: I have heard some things about dreams, but I wonder how you disentangle I'm having weird COVID dreams from, I ate a 25 milligram THC gummy, but you know, this is legal now in most states. So how do we account for that?
0: I wonder if he knows, but I definitely had mask related dreams and still sometimes do where I find myself in really crowded areas and without a mask in my dream. And I'm absolutely panicked by it. And I wake up incredibly stressed out.
1: It's the new version of the dream that I used to have. Cover your ears, people, because no one needs to hear about this dream of a 50-year-old man. But I often have dreams that I forgot to wear pants or underwear. And I just have to pretend like, no you know what, like, it's cool.
0: I never had, like, naked in public dreams. Never. And yet I have maskless in public dreams now. It's bizarre. Anyway, so Dave Sampson is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto. His research investigates the link between sleep and human evolution through revolutionary new approaches, recording sleep data sets and sleep architecture for a range of primates, including lemurs, zoo orangutans, wild chimpanzees, and humans living in different types and scales of societies. Hello, Dave. How are you?
2: I'm doing fantastic. How about you, Kara?
0: I'm doing a lot better than Chris, who is having to record from his car today. (laughs) Anyway, Dave, welcome to what might be our most chaotic of podcast interviews. Hopefully, you know, we usually start our podcasts off in basically the same way for each and every single person, and that's to kind of get to know a little bit about you and how you got interested in anthropology to begin with and why you decided to pursue it as a career.
2: Yeah, so as anthropologists, we all love origin stories and origin mythologies. Mine goes back to my childhood, actually, because I I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home. My dad was a fundamentalist minister for over 20 years. And an interesting thing occurred when I was really young, probably about eight or nine, a prospective member for the church was a geology student at the University of Montreal and asked my dad some pretty hard-hitting questions about the age of the earth and human evolution. My dad decided to take like a month or something to like disprove evolution, read a book or two. And that ended up being a a sort of a five-year excruciating period of challenge, of ontological challenge for my father, of which I was the guinea pig. And so I was sort of the canary in the coal mine and he would be reading Sagan or Stephen Jay Gould and he'd pitch me some thought experiments from there. So I remember being exposed to things like natural selection really early on I, I guess I was part of my, my dad's journey in that respect because he ended up resigning from the church because he couldn't talk about evolutionary theory. I mean, the church doctrine was that the earth was six to 10,000 years old. And when I was apparently telling him that natural selection makes more sense, it helped him along his way. And so by the time I got to college, I was primed to think about sort of the, the deeper questions about the human condition. And I was all, already just super curious. And then I took a class uh, on primatology from Kevin Hunt at Indiana University. And that ended up leading to, a few years later, leading to me spending almost a year of my life in Uganda chasing chimpanzees in the wild at the Torres Wildlife Reserve. And I suppose in the story, here's where the side quest to understanding sleep became actually like sort of a primary quest, So I was out there at the Taurus Simliki Wildlife Reserve and I was interested in chimpanzee material culture, great ape material culture. I was really interested in this bizarre feature of ape sleep and that apes are the only animals to build sleeping platforms, including humans. And if you're a even large brained monkey or a large bodied monkey you're going to generally either sleep in a tree nest hole or prostrate on a tree branch. And so I was curious as to what the material components of these nests were in an ecological context. So I I measured about 72 chimpanzee nests by climbing up into these African Sinometra trees, sometimes up to 20 meters, and quantifying them. And then uh, that was the first part of my dissertation. And that was the gateway into thinking about sort of the ultimate causation of sleep and sleep's role in terms of human evolution and primate evolution. And that led me to work with in the second part of my dissertation to work with Dr. Rob Schumacher at the Indianapolis Zoo. He's the, he's the president of life sciences there. And Rob and I were the first ever to record orangutan sleep architecture by way of infrared videography. And I spent uh, maybe I think about 2,000 hours of nighttime voyeurist observation of orangutan sleep and nighttime behavior. And that got me the PhD in 2013, which then propulsed me out to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I had a visiting assistant professorship for one year. And lo and behold, you know, we all have that moment right after we defend, we have to figure out like, okay, I've been doing this for years now. And what do I do now? What's the big research question? And I had been familiarized at this point with How much of a dearth of information there was on sleep's role in human evolution? There just wasn't much. There was Carol Worthman's work, which was fantastic, and and it just hinted at so much that we don't know. And at the time, nobody had really looked into forager sleep or small scale society sleep in any quantitative detail. This is where, you know, sort of like the research question meets a really nice uh, chance occurrence with a little bit of luck. Alyssa Kretenden was two offices down and I pitched her this idea. We shook hands and I said, hi. And I was like, I have this research idea. She said, come on in, let's talk. And we went into her office and she said, if you can get some funding, let's see if we can, you know, do some sleep research with the Hadza. That might be a good project. And we ended up getting National Geographic funding. And that happened alongside my postdoc at Duke University with Charles Nunn. In which we looked at sleep in a small scale Malagasy population as part of a a much broader one health study that had, you know, like 10 different students working on it. And I was sort of the sleep guy on that one. I cut my teeth there, figuring out how how to actually do sleep research in the field, and then got to go to Tanzania to work with the Hadza. And that's where it all began. And now sleep and looking at the cognitive roles of sleep and the, the specific functions of sleep within the human lineage has been what I've focused on for the
1: past several years. I grew up in Indianapolis, and I know that zoo really well. And so I remember you and Charlie, you guys were part of like the plenary session on sleep at a HBA meeting in 2008. You know, this sleep research is shockingly new, mm-hmm. right? Because everybody sleeps. And it's uh, Carol Workman, Jim McKenna are some of the people yeah, of course, who we associate with this work. But these initial studies of sleep, habits cross-culturally didn't really even start till less than 20 years ago. You've literally been on the cutting edge of sleep research as it just totally surprisingly for most people emerges. This is a completely understudied sort of bizarrely overlooked and there's a lot of opportunity in this area of research. So I guess my next question is to tell us about your sleep lab
0: And I'll add in on that because this can roll into your AJHB toolkit piece that recently came Mm -hmm. out so that you can talk about, you know, when people think of sleep studies, they think of labs and they think of these like very controlled conditions and how one takes those tools and actually applies them to field work, which are far less controlled.
2: Yeah, no, this is a really good question. I will go a long way around to answer it. First, I've got to also highlight the fact that but right after the Indianapolis Sioux and then landing at Duke was really fortuitous because Charlie Nunn had been looking at the phylogeny of sleep in primates. And it was there that, you know, these are why postdocs are so valuable. I would have never had the opportunity to sort of master my R coding and then the phylogenetic analyses that would have led to eventually us actually being able to make some of the cooler discoveries we've made about human sleeping being very unique in the primate order. And we can get to that later. So to your question about the lab, we're really excited. We actually just received a infrastructure grant from the province in Ontario, coupled with funding from the University of Toronto to build the shell. So this is the Sleep and Human Evolution Lab. And as far as I know, it's one of the only labs that is dedicated explicitly to answering evolutionary hypotheses. The funding I have is pretty broad in scope. And as you guys know, my research is pretty broad in scope. I've worked with model species throughout the primary order, lemurs, baboons, orangs, chimps, and humans out in small scale contexts as well. And so the shell has as one of its objectives is to be able to take some of the really beautiful technology that we have in a clinical context, like polysomnography, where you can really differentiate sleep architecture, the distribution between non-REM and REM sleep. And you can really quantitate that. The one limitation of taking it out into the field is you're generally limited to actigraphy. And actigraphy is really well validated for measuring sleep versus wake, but it can't distinguish between non-REM versus REM. And as it turns out, REM and non-REM serve vastly different functions and bootstrap vastly different processes for human cognition and human health. Trying to tease apart both those things, I think, requires a wedding of both controlled lab environments and a field approach. And that's what we're doing at the Shell.
0: And so then tell us, you have actigraphy for the field, but yeah. what other ways do you take you know, sleep study techniques and apply them to apes and humans of all walks of life? In actual life, in non-controlled settings, what sorts of things other than actigraphy do you rely on?
2: So we do actigraphy. There's some really cool technology and development, actually, I'm wearing right now. This is the Aura Ring. It is pretty much bleeding-edge biometric technology. It is getting very, very close to being able to distinguish between non-REM and REM. So we've got a couple different tools that we're experimenting with out in the field but also surveys. We're really interested now in coupling our sleep data with social network analysis. So we can really dig down deeper into the social context of the people that are sleeping in these environments. In Madagascar, we were among the first to use and apply a mobile PSG. So this was actually with the electrodes that are put on the surface Mm. of the scalp to be able to get Non REM and REM, it was very arduous. We got about 11 participants over like 13 or 14 nights. It was really, really hard work, but we also did apply that in a field context. So there's a lot of different approaches you can take.
0: I kind of want you to do a self study, if you haven't already, of what happens to your sleep cycle when you are studying others' sleep. Because I imagine you take on a very different pattern than when, like, you're home and not having to watch oh, yeah. someone sleep at night. <laughs>
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I've been wearing this now for about two years. So I have a pretty good understanding of how messed up your life gets in the field. (laughs) In the field. And actually when I'm teaching a heavy course load too. Yeah. I will have a significant reduction in deep sleep Mm -hmm. and I appear to have significantly more REM sleep. So REM, one of the functions of REM is emotional regulation and emotional Mm -hmm. processing. Uh, And it appears to be at the expense of my deep sleep, which is more like basic restoration. So there's like this trade-off going on during this really high intense period where typically I'm dealing with a lot of people.
0: So speaking of sleep disruption and things getting in the way, we are now in what month 15, month 16 of the global pandemic. We're at this point now. And I was so excited to see this paper because I have had COVID dreams, although Chris and I were talking about this in the intro, mine are very much, I have a nightmare that I'm in a very busy populated public space and I have forgotten a mask and like, I'm in a panic, but oddly, I never had the, you know, the stereotypical naked in public dreams. So Mm -hmm. like Chris made the parallel to that, but I never had those, but I have these COVID mask dreams. And so you and a student.
2: Yeah. Eric, my senior graduate student, Erica Kilius.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you all decided to study COVID and nightmares. So what prompted it? I'm assuming there may have been some personal like, oh shit, I'm having nightmares. I wonder if other people are too, but maybe give us some of the backstory there.
2: Sure. Well, I've had a penchant for reading Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell for a long while. Who isn't compelled by dreams? I mean, the first hypothesis in terms of what the function of dream was, we can pause it back to at least recorded, easily recordable, back to Plato, where he suggested that The reason why we dream is that we have these effluences that beam out of our eyes while we're awake. And then when we close our eyes, it reflects back into the, into the mind. People have been thinking about this for a really long time. There are, I would say about half a dozen legit hypotheses as to the function of dream. Obviously there's the epiphenomenal one that is just random firing of neurons in your brain. And I want to say that this is probably not the case. This is obviously an area of huge contention. If you look at day reports, if people are to report what they're doing to the day, and then you look at the dream reports, which we can talk about how we measure those in a second. But when you look at those things, very rarely do they ever match up. Something else is going on. And the ideas in recent you know, scientific history go back to Freud, where he believed that dreams represented some sort of disguised fulfillment of repressed wishes, the memory consolidation theory that perhaps... Dreams are replaying just past events and you're trying to, to memorize activity. And then, uh, Kara, you might like this one, threat simulation theory. And this is Ravanzo and Volley. They proposed this theory in 2001. And this fits re- very clearly with your anecdote, because it's the idea that one of the functions of dreaming is to prime you for any potential threat that you may need to overcome in your environment. So what obviously, you know, it's the pandemic hits. One of the things your brain is going to attempt to process is something like uh, mask wearing. There are real fitness consequences, at least perceived fitness consequences by your brain for not doing so, right? And then there's a host of different theories. There's the empathy theory that, in fact, perhaps it didn't have any sort of cognitive function, but it's a way to empathize with other people. And that if we think about this as, as sort of the ethnography component of it, when you talk to people who work in these contexts, oftentimes the sharing of dream has just as much significance as the actual dream itself. So who you share your dream to, what the meaning or message or prognostication of your dream, where it's directed in your social network, how does that influence how other people react to you? I think of the example of the Iroquois, the midwinter ceremony, where for seven days they share dreams. And it's like a dream sharing ceremony. The functions of ceremonies and ritual, this is all about like social bonding, social coalitionary building, these types of things. There's so much complexity and so much nuance in terms of how we view dreams and how they can affect perhaps fitness-relevant axes.
1: I think I saw this in a tweet that you sent out when you advertised the paper. You were linking the role of dreams to consciousness and identity. And, And dreams are such a fundamental aspect of how we see ourselves as humans. I'm always struck by the number of times students ask me what dreams mean and how understudied sleep is to date. And I want to ask you about an aspect of your study that sort of struck me as mirroring this contrast, right? I know that you were using a baseline sample of dreams that to me seem a little bit dated. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the methods that you used and In that contrast,
2: yeah, totally. That's a great question, Chris. Um, so for those listeners who actually don't know, and very very few people know how you would go about even measuring a dream, right? And so the Hal van de Castle dream coding system, it goes back to the 50s and the 60s. And for 20 or 30 years, a group that was originally using this methodology, they collected and cataloged tens of thousands of dreams mainly from again this goes to the limitation of the sample from the United States college students and if you particularly think about the time too in a very specific political social political economic context and unfortunately in terms of like dream analysis you need a big n cuz there's a lot of variation right from day to day in terms of dream content But the way you do it is that you say, for example, somebody records a dream of, say, 150 words. There are numerical values that are associated with specific words. So if something like is anger or I punched or is action oriented, aggression oriented, sexually oriented, then it has particular values that you can then use to generate H statistics to compare against other samples. And so one of the interesting things we want to do here at the Shell is generate a much more modern sample that can take into account very specific social contexts as well. So that's something that we're actively trying to do. Nora Boss, my master's student, is working on this right now, and she was part of the quote unquote dream team that came out with this paper this year. So, yeah, we're actively trying to work towards a better representative sample. But the issue is you got to get a lot of dreams and particularly you got to get a lot of dreams from each individual. So that is a big challenge with this.
0: So what I'm hearing is I should not trust the internet dream interpreting sites that say when you dream about your teeth falling out, you're having money woes. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, those aren't so good. (laughs) I had a friend in college who was obsessed with his dreams and would look up like all of these sites to see what they meant. And I'm just like, that doesn't sound right. Also, how many people actually dream of their teeth falling out? Anyway, anyway. So Uh, it's a
2: reoccurring one. I've had it, but my biggest reoccurring dream is, and this might strike home for us since we do a lot of public speaking, but it's I walk into some type of public speaking context. It it often changes. It could be a stadium of 10,000 or just a small classroom. And I can't find my voice. And I don't know what I'm about to talk about. And I'm like, and I wake up, this is my reoccurring. And I've actually heard a lot of people have this, particularly in our profession.
1: Uh, My (laughs) reoccurring dreams are flying, which is a great one. The forgot my pants that Kara alluded to that nobody needs to imagine. <laughs> and forgetting to go to class for a whole semester, whether it's being in the class or teaching, and I just forget altogether that I had, had a class.
0: class. <laughs> yeah.
2: It is interesting though that all the if you want to weave a theme anecdotally, these are fitness relevant things, right? These are our job. This is how we get enough resources to feed ourselves and our family. So it's worthy of investigation, is all I want to say.
0: If you could fly, Chris. (laughs) Pretty cool. Way improved fitness. Anyway, so what did you all find out about COVID-19 dreams? Because you worked with college students. What did you find? And you also found a male-female difference that I'd love to hear a little bit more about.
2: Yeah, well, we did. We found that incidences of aggressive interactions actually increased when we compared them to the normative samples. And... We also found that this was dramatically the case for women who were much more likely to experience aggressive interactions in their dream content, including increased physical aggression. And this is interesting. Erica and the team, they found that this actually mapped pretty well onto a study by Barrett et al. in 2020 that showed that female dreams had more negative emotions, anxiety, sadness, and anger in a COVID-19 context. And the way that we attempted to wrestle with this particular disparity was perhaps looking at the differences in how the transition between working at home have disproportionately affected women. Given women perform unpaid labor at three times the rate of men and are likely to be performing more primary caregiving, perhaps in our discussion section, this was one point that we brought up that may help explain or at least color this result.
0: It's an interesting connection to make as you don't put those same kinds of demands on university, you know, college mm-hmm. student women that they don't necessarily That's have right. the, the work at home. and so They yeah, might not.
2: They might, though. They might.
0: Did you have that data? Certainly, uh,
2: off the top of my head, I do not know.
0: <laughs> I appreciate the I don't know. We were just talking about this with somebody that we uh-huh. need to be more comfortable with the I don't know. But looking ahead from this study, so taking what you learned about how... COVID dreams are a thing that happened and that there is a difference between men and women. What can we learn from this moving forward for when there are, you know, as there likely will be, other large global events that cause an extreme amount of stress and, you know, other problems with health, well-being, employment, financial status, childcare, education, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a public health approach, what can we take from this?
2: Yeah, well, it's absolutely critical that we keep in mind how important sleep is as it underpins both the health of our body and the health of our minds. It's particularly interesting in the context of trauma, because when we look at the recent studies with PTSD, there is this very interesting relationship with sleep, and it's actually led to some profound therapeutic strategies to help people with PTSD or with trauma to overcome this. So basically, if you think about REM and REM's function, one of the core processes here is emotional processing and emotional regulation. And so, this Walker 2009 paper really beautifully describes this hypothesis that suggests that what REM is doing whenever you're actively in REM is it's taking the actual emotional valence, it's stripping the memory of the negative event of its emotional valence so that you can then engage it without reliving the emotional pain from it but what happens is is people with ptsd generally one of the very first symptoms of ptsd is poor sleep and so they're being underslept and they're not getting the right amount of rem to be able to go through this critical function so it's a negative feedback loop and if you therapeutically target the sleep it turns out that this really ameliorates the situation with the ptsd but this is sort of an extreme thing in general Sleep will allow you to maximize your health, both
1: from a cognitive perspective and from a physical perspective. Given the number of different variables that impact sleep that you need to control for, which is why you would need a big sample. I wondered if you asked about things like drug and alcohol use, right? Because we've heard a lot of people talking about their wine consumption or their Mm. edible consumption going up during the pandemic to help with their sleep.
2: Yeah, so that's definitely a confound. Also in Canada, smoking marijuana is legal, and there are profound effects with alcohol and marijuana consumption, particularly within two or three hours before you fall asleep. You are going to be significantly reducing REM and slow wave sleep. It can have very significant effects. So, if you're going to do it, what I encourage my students to do is if you have particular vices. And this goes for almost any vice. Mine is video games. So if you're going to have any vices, do them in the day when your body is most primed and prepared to process whatever junk or garbage you're about to introduce to it. For example, eating sweets, right? Our ability, our insulin peaks. It has a beautiful circadian rhythm. It peaks at noon, generally between noon and two. And that's, likely the best time to eat something really crappy and sweet because your body can actually handle it as opposed to say two in the morning when you are at the opposite, you're at the trowel of that insulin rhythm.
0: This adds on to Chris's because I think that things like wine and THC or CBD are slightly different in that people actually use them in order to sleep And so taking it at, you know, noon or one o'clock in the afternoon is not going to help them get to the sleep that they want. And so what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, it's a nasty trade-off because what they're doing is they're reducing anxiety, right? They're trying to quiet their mind, but it might be a little bit more helpful if you use some type of method to quiet your mind or reduce anxiety that doesn't actually inhibit the proper functioning of your sleep architecture. So maybe like meditation, right? As
1: opposed to drinking alcohol. I was going to say good luck with that. I will also say the metabolism problem is pretty widespread and also good luck with that.
2: Let me double down on this though, Chris, because it's it's super important. One of the most powerful ways that you can enhance your circadian rhythm is by timing when you eat. And this was an absolute game changer for me. Pre-COVID, I'd do a lot of traveling, particularly massive changes in time zones. And one of the best ways to get realigned in your new circadian environment is by timing your food consumption the formula is minus three hours before the time you want to fall asleep and if you habituate your body habituate your circadian rhythm to do this and it's something i've basically habituated now for the past few years your sleep latency will significantly decrease so this is the time in which you actually get into bed and then fall asleep this is this really key variable sleep latency And when you got a strong rhythm, and you time this window perfectly, your sleep latency will will drop significantly.
1: So now you and Dan Lieberman have both made me feel really guilty for eating my first meal at six and second meal at midnight, and then going to sleep right after it. When we interviewed him Mm -hmm. and read his book, it was about how eating at midnight, you're more likely to put on organ fat, right? That's how it goes. And now, I am a shitty sleeper.
0: I've got to be the exception to like everyone here and that like I'm super regimented about what time of day I eat and exactly when I exercise and I'm still a shitty sleeper. <laughs> like mm. when you said that three hours, like naturally I'd roughly eat three hours right before going to bed and now I, I'm a shitty awesome. sleeper. That's
2: uh, awesome. Just out of out of curiosity, how much exposure to lux and natural lighting do you get or
0: my I mean, child's
2: name is
1: Lux, so I get a lot of exposure That's it. awesome. Oh my goodness. That's a great name. <laughs> well,
0: at the moment, you're seeing a lot of it come in at me through the window. I've got these huge mm-hmm. windows. Um, and I will mm-hmm. go for a good hour, hour and 15 minute walk on most days as well. So that's like, good. I'm outdoors.
2: That's good. That's good. Okay. That would just be the first brush I would do in terms of people having sleep issues would be talking about
1: circadian rhythms. You know, we're talking about both scientific applications, but we're also always interested in policy applications. We jest, right? Because we use ourselves as examples because we are not unusual, right? We are relatively normal and comparable to the folks out there struggling with developing lifestyles that are healthy, but also balanced and contain things like video games and wine and food, you know, all these things that our culture, I wouldn't say imposes on us, but the cultural impacts on our health are critical.
0: Anyway, what are you doing next? What's on the plate? You did this awesome COVID study, but have things kind of halted for the time being because of the pandemic and kind of the trajectory for the next, I don't know, year or so? Uh,
2: It has thrown a few wrenches into field work for obvious reasons. But that being said, we've been really, really productive. And it gave me the opportunity to do some more theoretical work. So Mm -hmm. in 2015, Charlie Nunn and I, we published in Evolutionary Anthropology, a paper that talked about the sleep intensity hypothesis. And this was the idea that over the course of human evolution, Total sleep times for humans have been whittling down because what we found was that relative to when you do an actual phylogenetic analysis of human REM and human non-REM and human total sleep time, we would expect after controlling for a host of different variables—diet, brain, body mass, all these good stuff—you would predict that humans should sleep ten hours out of the day, and obviously we don't. So something really interesting was emerging from the model, and what we discovered is that after doing these phylogenetic analyses, humans are absolutely unique in that they have very, very short sleep. And so we wanted to then follow up to figure out, well, what about the kind of sleep? Are we not just short sleepers? Are we high quality sleepers? And so a lot of our work looked at that. And we have, despite having the shortest total sleep times of any primate on average, we have the highest proportion of REM. And this is a very deep, vulnerable state to be in because when you're in basic rem for example you're as dead to the world as you will ever be so you can imagine this might have very significant fitness consequences you know 25% of your sleep period is in rem and you are a homo erectus living in the savanna 1.8 million years ago there might be some consequences for that and so in this paper that has just been accepted in the annual review of anthropology it should be coming out in i think august but it might be i think i signed the waiver for early publication so we'll see when it comes out. But I forward the idea of the social sleep hypothesis. This is the idea that sleep sites function as a type of social shelter by way of an extended structure of social groups, allowing short, high quality fitness enhancing sleep. And this is sort of leveraging the idea of an exophenotype. That is that you have non incidental effects of genes on the outside of the body. And it's looking at all the things that with human sleep expression are unique in a way that Our social groups are like this mobile shell that we can take with us to higher latitudes to places all over the globe. And it is all part and parcel of the fact that modern foragers use simple mobile sleep technology, like the control of fire. They thermoregulate with hide shelters and branches. The work that we did in the Hansa revealed that there was very big propensity for sleep sentinels. So we found that synchronous sleep was incredibly rare. In fact, in our sample there, about 18 minutes out of tens of thousands that were analyzed were all the adults asleep at the same time. So there's this embedded overlap where when people are are in different, really vulnerable states of sleep, it's distributed very nicely over the night. So there's this natural centralization. And it also allows for things like naps during the day. If you spend the night forging social alliances by partying all night, you can also, because of the safety of this social shell, you can also go back. fall asleep during the day and so bringing it full circle that is why we named the lab shell sleep human evolution
1: this sounds like we have like 30 more episodes to record (laughs) with you for all the questions that we're gonna have but one of the pushbacks would be still like the television the video games Mm -hmm. the wine all that stuff could be contained within that shell allowing right because i'm listening to lisa robinson's rock and roll book where it talks about all these musicians who stay up all night yep. partying and playing music and then they sleep till noon. That's a regular thing, right? Yep. Which is very similar to a teenager. Yes. I have My luck stays up all night gaming and then sleeps till three. I'm glad you brought up age because age, out of all the things
2: that we modeled, age was the driver for this chronotypic variation. You have elderly individuals going to bed early and waking up early. And then you have Young individuals who perhaps are shoring up those critical friendships that are going to be their key to survival for the rest of their lives, and maybe perhaps seeking a mate, they're up late, and then they get to sleep in a little bit later because the grandparents are up, right? And so when you're sleeping in an intergenerational context, and you have this broad demographic variability in your sleep site, perhaps that's a good thing.
0: I am now in the category of old person, given my, my typical sleep pattern. As Chris knows well, whenever we have to room together for the meetings.
1: Forget going to a conference on the West Coast with Carrot.
0: I'm in bed by like 5 p.m. during West Coast conferences. Sure. It's really bad.
1: Larks live very productive lives.
2: Typically, owls are very, very social.
0: Yeah, I don't like people, the, the, so the I, I guess typically. this works. <laughs>
1: fascinated by your family story and I wonder if you could loop it back around to how all that sort of resonated in your in my family
2: um well as far as my father goes it's interesting he's come almost a 180 from his days as an authoritarian fundamentalist minister he's now one of the most open-minded human beings I know on the planet yeah he's really proud of what I do and why I go to work It's funny, we just recently kind of had this conversation, Chris, where we realized that there was a parallel in the type of thing we do, because I'm using all the skills of oration and communication and synthesizing information to a broader public that my father had just doing a different thing. So it was like, it was this realization that we're both, I'm tapping into these ancestral skill sets that I inherited, but just for a different uh, sermon. It's a beautiful thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. So what do you do for fun, Dave?
2: So I, I practice a medieval martial art called Society of Creative Anachronism. A lot of anthropologists already know what this is, but it is essentially you dress up in full plate armor and you take raton sticks and you have like metal shields. It's a live fight. You beat the ever living crap out of each other, out of your friends and it's it's a lot of fun and it's a good de-stressor. Less of that during the pandemic, but still I have a core group I still hang out with within that capacity. It's an international pastime. There's a event called Penzic that attracts 20,000 people to Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. You can field a battle with about a thousand people in full plate armor that are fighting live all in one oh moment. Gosh. It's, it's I've amazing. never done anything cooler than that.
0: And then also I'll ask this question, like on behalf of Chris's kids, you said video games are your big vice. What is your go-to video game?
2: As I have aged and as my core tribe and friend group has gone geographically dispersed, we'll try and get together and game socially. So any kind of game that allows us to, to do that, which there are so many these days, the forest was a really good one. It was a survival horror game. We got to play together. It was fantastic. We got to build our own fort and like cannibals would attack it at night. It was awesome. But Red Dead Redemption when one I've been playing pretty recently. I love that pretty one. Pretty awesome. Oh, it's so good.
0: This has been a delight.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much.